So in the production process, we've been talking about uh, a number of different things that are all under the umbrella of, of master data. I think the last thing that we spent time talking about, well, let's just recap. We did talk a little bit about uh, the bill of materials and what it does and the significance of the bill of materials and various things related to that. We, After we did that, we, we talked about the concept of a work center and what that is and why it's important and, and how work centers are used. And, and continuing along those lines, the next thing for us to discuss is, is the product routing. The idea here is that the bill of material tells us the components that go into the manufacture of an item, but the product routing actually gives the steps necessary to produce the material. This is important for us really for, for a wide variety of reasons. First of all, it's, it's very important operationally because it helps specify the equipment that's needed, the personnel that's needed, the overall process of doing the work. But it also obviously is very important in things like costing the manufacturing process and keeping track of what that would actually be for the different materials that, that we make. And so as far as the things that you would find in a product routing, there are the various operations or essentially the work that's being done. Do this, do this, do this. Those are, are what we're talking about when we, we say the operations. And the sequence here can be as simple or as complex as is needed in the context of making a particular item. We could, for example, have a, a standard sequence, which would just be do these five steps in this order and then pass it on to the next work center for them to continue their work. The idea behind an alternate sequence is, is what you would imagine it to be. We normally would do it this way, but alternately we could do it this other way. Uh, perhaps we might have an alternate uh, sequence that would be relevant if uh, a piece of equipment wasn't working or we were making a variation on a product or uh, we had a different personnel configuration than required by the standard sequence. And so we can have various alternate sequences to define how to produce a material. And then parallel is just the idea that different steps can be done uh, simultaneous with one another. So if you could envision a flow chart where the alternate pathways might be represented by diamonds that diverge into two different pathways or parallel, the idea being that you know one thing is done simultaneous with another thing being done and then they join back up for the next step, that, that's the idea here. And so in a product routing, we have the operations, we have the sequencing of those operations, we have the work center where the operations are performed, um, and then we have times. And times are largely segregated into three different domains. And it's been a while since you have seen this in your lab work, but you did configure some product routings. And, and the idea here is we think in terms of, of setup time, which is 
time needed to get ready to perform the operation, and then the actual doing of the work itself, which falls under the category of labor, if we're looking at it from a human dimension, and machine, if this is being done by a piece of equipment. So for example, we might specify that there are three minutes of setup time, and then 10 minutes of labor, uh, of which all 10 of that is done on a machine. And so that would be specified in regards to the operations in a, in a product routing. Perhaps the, the most relevant um, item from an ERP perspective here is, is component assignment. And so the idea here is that we have materials that are going to be referenced in the product routing. And so where are those materials used? So the idea would be here's a, here's a bill of materials and, and here's a product routing. And there might be 10 different items on the bill of material and the routing specifies a number of different steps. And so it might be that products one through three are used here in this first step and then products four and five are incorporated two steps later, and, and so on. The idea being that all of the components from the bill of material would be assigned here somewhere, and that's done through this component assignment. It's the relationship between the bill of materials and the routing establishes that. And this can be as specific as we want it to be, or in fact we could leave components unassigned. And there's a very important rule of thumb that comes into play, which is that if we do not take the time to assign components to individual steps, then everything is automatically assigned to the very first step. So either we say like we're doing here, uh, you know, and I'm just using numbers here in place of actual materials, but if I don't take the time to actually assign them to individual steps, then the implication is that all one through 10 would be assigned to this, this first step. Now, why is that important? Why is this assignment of components to process steps? How could you envision that being something that we would, would care about? What, is that, what does that do for us or mean to us? I could tell you, but waiting for someone to go out on a limb and you share want, your... Um, for example, like in muesli production, you wouldn't want to incorporate all of them into the very first process. You'd want to first make set up your bag and then dump the muesli in there and then dump the blueberries and then in the next step you would want to put it in the box. So you'd want to kind of set it up so that each one comes at a time that it's needed in the steps instead of just all being allocated at the first and then having to be staggered back through it. Okay, you said a couple of things that are very, very good and very relevant. First of all, we make the assumption that all of the items are in fact not needed in the very first step. Now I suppose there could be something, if we stick with your, you know, we're making muesli or something, maybe there's some product where you do in the very first step dump everything into one giant whatever 
and and then the process continues from there. But like you observe, typically there's going to be some things you're going to do here and some things you're going to do there. So to take the time to assign the materials to a particular operation is, is more reflective of reality. And then you mentioned the idea of, of time, which is the other element that comes into play here. Because in fact, the process here could be something that spans across a, a period of time beyond just a few minutes. And so if this item right here isn't needed until the very last step, that might actually be a day or two after the very first step was executed. And so if we're thinking of this in terms of ordering the materials and staging the materials and things like that, to actually assign them to their relevant steps gives us much more control over truly understanding when things are needed from a timing perspective. It also makes more sense for us in the terms of a logistical material staging. If you worked at the very first work center, you probably wouldn't appreciate it if everything was delivered to your work center and then you took the things that you needed but you also had to handle all the things that you don't need and distribute them elsewhere. If we take the time to assign these appropriately to the operations, then that also carries with it references to work centers so the materials can be staged much more, much more relevantly. This diagram from your book here just shows uh, what a routing would look like. It's a fairly straightforward document in that there's a header section that identifies certain key facts about the routing, how it's used, and who's responsible and whether this is a valid routing or not. And then you just have, uh, in this case, a standard set of sequences with a set of operations and then an alternate set of sequences. And here's a more specific example uh, where the first step is we stage the materials and we attach the seat to the frame and we attach a handlebar. And it's just a description of the process like we would use in a, in a manufacturing uh, type environment. This additional uh, picture here from your textbook adds to it this idea of how we reference timing here. And so the idea is that you're allocated for testing the bike, which is Operation 80, that's going to take place at Work Center INSP 1000. And you're allowed two minutes to set up and then five minutes of people time and five minutes of machine time for actually processing the item and then uh, unspecified time here related to, to teardown. And so this could be specified very specifically like we see it here or it could be variable. But the basic idea is if we want to exert control over the manufacturing process, this is very relevant for us in terms of costing and to look at this from the perspective, okay, this step right here uh, is going to take this much in the way of human time, and we know how much we pay people, and we know how many units we need to make, and so it becomes much easier for us to actually do the costing associated with this. The assignment of the components, like I talked about a moment ago, is, is shown in this particular diagram here, where we have a bill of material that lists three different materials. And in fact, the very first operation, Operation 10, 
doesn't require any materials. Operation 20 uses material A. Operation 30 uses material B and C. So we particularly make those assignment to those operations. And the idea is, if we have not made this assignment, then all of those materials are just assigned to the very first operation in the process. So m understanding that default assignment is an important part of this overall. Any questions about this? All right, well, we are continuing talking about master data and uh, one of the views on our material master is highly relevant for us in the production process and that is the MRP view. Now all of you have run MRP in the context of playing ERP sim when you did it, or at least I trust you did, if not you had someone on your team that did that, so you're familiar at least in a general way with, with how that is used. There are in fact a variety of ways that materials can be planned in the context of MRP planning. And in fact the details of that will be deferred to a, a later discussion. But I'll just for now mention that we can plan this either based on MRP, we can plan this based on consumption, or we can actually plan this based on no planning whatsoever, which doesn't really sound like a plan, but it counts as one of our three ways of planning this. MRP is based typically on what? When you ran MRP in the context of ERP SIM, what was the fundamental element that was driving the calculation? sales forecasts, okay? So this MRP we're talking about here is we're talking about it being based on forecasting. Consumption-based looks at it from the opposite perspective. Instead of looking at it based on how many we expect to sell, we do things like say, okay, over the last month, we've consumed 5,000 of these a day. And so we look at it from the perspective of consumption and look at trends and consumption and other things. We can ultimately find ourselves converging on the same kind of answer, but it's a, a different strategy overall for how we're going to, to make this decision. Other things that are on the material master that are very relevant for us is lot size. And this is another thing that you would have seen in the context of ERP SIM, although perhaps you exerted some control over this in your team or not. You might have recalled that when you were planning your materials, maybe you had the system configured to give you planned orders with a maximum size of 50,000 units or, or 25,000 units. And if you put in a particular sales forecast and then ran the MRP process, you might have seen for a particular material that you got a 50,000 unit planned order and another 50,000 unit planned order and then one for 12,116 units or something of that sort. Well, this is this idea of lot size. And in fact, there's different ways that we could exert control over this. We could, for example, say, give me unit sizes in the batch of 50,000. And in this situation right here, just kill this guy off totally. I don't want him. Or we could say, 
when we're doing this, round up. And so it would turn this guy right here into another planned order for 50,000. So depending upon how we configure lot sizes will determine how the system actually handles this in regards to the biggest lot size, the smallest lot size, and then what it does with these odd lots and, and how it handles that. So that's another element of, of configuration here. And then in regards to MRP, when we talk about procurement type, the idea here is are we procuring, uh, or you can almost think of this more like acquiring, are, are we going to do this based on in-house production or in-house procurement, transferring it from another part of, of our um, organization, or are we going to do it based on, on external procurement? which would be what we would typically think of when we use the term procurement, ordering from, from a supplier. <coughs> Questions about this before we head on to the next one? In-house production time. So if we are going to be making this item in-house, how, how long is that going to take? I think you know, a lot of this is fairly straightforward. They're very important items. Uh, for us on the MRP view, but I don't know that there's anything needed in the way of extended discussion on them. Uh, plan delivery time. Uh, how long will it take us to acquire this material externally if we are going to, to be purchasing it? And then this idea of, of, state of safety stock. And in talking about safety stock, um, this goes back to consumption-oriented planning, which was an item that was on the, the last slide. And so uh, let's talk about consumption-oriented planning. The basic idea behind consumption-oriented planning is, is we look at placing an order given the idea of never allowing our inventory to dip below a certain value. So if we were thinking of our inventory level in terms of like a line chart that was going down, um, we would indicate, okay, for this given item, we never, ever, ever want to have fewer than, let's say, 1,000 units in stock. Well, that specifies a safety stock level. And so we would make sure that we reorder in advance of hitting that level so that we never dip into our safety stock. Now, the reality is the reason why you have safety stock is so if something exceptional happens and you have to dip into that, you can. But this keeps you from, from running out. And so safety stock is something that is a very critical component. This is actually something you could have incorporated into ERP SIM, although we, we don't usually cover it because it, it can be a little complex. But the idea here is you could use MRP and you could specify safety stock of certain materials. And this way, even if you didn't put in a sales forecast, it would, it would bring in materials enough to allow you to keep things up at that safety stock level. We would not necessarily define this for every item, but we certainly would do this for items that were very critical. Um, and this is going to vary from company to company. Um, 
an example of this, I suppose, would be if after class or before class day, if you decided you wanted to go out to lunch and you went over to McDonald's. If you walked into McDonald's and said, I would like a filet of fish sandwich, if they said, sorry, we're out of fish patties, that's not the end of the world. If you walked into McDonald's and they, you ordered a hamburger and they said, sorry, we're out of beef patties, we can't sell you any kind of hamburgers, in the context of it being McDonald's, that's kind of a bigger problem. They don't ever want to run out of hamburgers. And so they always make sure they have enough frozen patties on hand to make sure that they never, ever run out. That's what safety stock allows a company to do to make sure that they never find themselves in a stock out situation. Strategy group is this idea of we can classify our materials into different categories for the sake of planning them differently. And when we do our next discussion on material planning, we will get into this. But going back to my example of, of McDonald's, if we were to think about the different products that McDonald's had, we could very easily do things like say, okay, there are certain A products, which are the items that we sell most frequently and are most important to us. And then we have secondary products, which are B products. And then we have our C products, which are things that we, you know, we want to have, but they clearly are not as critically important as the other items. And there are different ways that we can break materials into different groups. And in fact, we might plan different material groups in, in different ways. Well, strategy groups give us this idea of things that you perhaps have talked about before in the context of ERP SIM, and that we'll talk about here for just a moment, this idea of, of make to stock, make to order, and other things of that sort that allow us to adopt different strategies in the manufacture of products. Make to order is where we make items and we put them in inventory. So we make to inventory and then we sell from inventory. And so once again, making reference to ERP SIM, that's what you did in ERP SIM when you produced muesli and put it in your warehouse and then sold from the warehouse. Um, and I just got that totally backwards. Somebody should have fixed that here. I have just described make to stock. Make to stock is where we make it to inventory and sell from inventory. Make to order is where we make in response to a customer order. So it might not seem that different, but in fact in execution it's a rather significant difference. In make to order, in pure make to order, I don't make anything until I have a firm customer order for it. And then in that situation, I manufacture it, particularly uh, in response to that order from that, from that customer. So in my material master, I can designate a particular material as being one that I handle in a make to order fashion, a make to stock fashion, or according to some other strategy that I would adopt within my, within my organization. And then we have one last thing here, which is the availability check group. And this is when the system begins planning, how does it check for material availability? 
Now I'm going to once again make reference to ERP SIM and your experience with that. Hopefully you can recall these things, but you might remember that an ERP SIM, when you ran the MRP check, what did it do? Well, first of all, it started with the forecast. And so I'll uh, forecast, there's an E in forecast, isn't there? Forecast. So let's say we had a forecast of 100,000 units. And then uh, what did it subtract from that in deciding how much to actually make? Okay, it, subtra it subtracted from that my, my current inventory, which we'll say in this example is 15,000 units. And then what else did it subtract? Production orders. And so let's assume in this example that that was 25,000. And it would come to the conclusion that we have a deficit in this situation of, of 60,000. Well, the idea here is we can tell it how to do that calculation. ERP SIM, it was configured in the manner that we just described. But in fact, you could have it include planned orders. One of the things that was true about MRP in the context of ERP SIM is we did what was called destructive MRP. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but destructive MRP takes all of your previous work, throws it away, and starts over again. So all of the planned orders that were in the system that haven't been converted into production orders, they get thrown away. Well, we don't have to do it that way. We could keep those existing planned orders, and we could have incorporated that into this calculation. We could have said minus the existing planned orders. We just have to configure that here. What about purchase orders? And let's think about this in terms of the raw materials when it was ordering that. Um, let's say, for example, that it looked at um, this and said, okay, in order to do this, we need 60,000 bags. Well, how many bags do I need to order? It would look at my existing inventory, uh, my current inventory of bags, but it would look at that for bags that weren't already reserved. So if I had 10,000 bags, but they're already reserved by an upcoming production run, it, it wouldn't count them. But I could tell it to ignore reservations. So with all of this, you can configure. You could say, count purchase orders or don't count purchase orders. So how we have the system do this availability check is something that is within our ability to configure. And, and we do that on the material master for every item individually in the MRP view. Questions about that? That's a really, really important view and something that uh, if we're going to actually be doing MRP-based planning, there's an awful lot of things there that we can configure to get it to do the calculations the way we want it to. Questions? 
All right, and let me just as an aside here, and you might have figured this out previously, but one of the things that we talked about on the last side related to MRP views was things like lot size, rounding, and other things like that. I trust you realize that the decision that I make back there regarding how I'm going to do rounding and all, all of that manifests itself here as well. Because if I round in one place, I have to carry forward those rounded numbers and so on. You could work all this out with a spreadsheet, but it's nice to be able to push this onto the computer to have the computer do it for us. Well, we are just about finished with, matter of fact, this is the last piece of master data associated with the production process. It's important to realize all the things we've been talking about fall under the umbrella of master data. You know, a work center uh, doesn't necessarily sound like master data, but that's what it's classified as. Production resource tool or a PRT are, are these things that we have that are equipment that people use in production, but they're not part of an individual work center. You know, a work center might have a lathe in it and that lathe in it might be affixed to the floor and it never moves. It always sits there. It's a part of that work center. But there are other pieces of equipment that might move around among the different work centers. They're shared. Um, a piece of equipment that's not in a fixed location. Maybe we have a certain set of tools that are used for calibration and they can be used in several different work centers. So we hopefully keep them in a standard location and then people go and fetch them and make use of them as they as they need to. So any kind of shared resource that we have like this falls into the category of a production resource tool and it can be made reference to in our product routings as one of the items that's used in an individual operation in an individual work center. Any questions about this? All right, well finally we get to the meat of this, which is the production process. And so this diagram is one that is, um, is very um, important to us. It looks a little bit different than um, our, our um, other diagrams that we have seen here. Um, we have a trigger here that is a request for production. And um, this is, it's kind of interesting, there's a, there's a typo here on this slide that you might want to correct here. Notice it says request for production and it calls it a planned requisition. No such thing, that should be what? Planned order. So planned order there. Authorizing production to the production order, release the production order, and then we have the goods being issued, the production, the confirmation, and a lot of nuts and bolts kinds of things that we will talk about here, including everyone's favorite topic. Uh, there's a good bit of a accounting things related to this. The good thing about this is once we finish the production process, I'm pretty sure we're finished with all of our individual accounting related things this semester. Um, let me offer you a recommendation. And in previous semesters, I've actually given this to students as a homework assignment. Didn't do it this semester, but I would suggest you do it. Go through your notes and or your textbook. And for all of the processes, 
pull out all the individual accounting processes and just make yourself like a master study list of all of those things because on your final exam <coughs> which I, I haven't written yet so I can give you a more precise number at some point in the near future but a significant chunk of the questions that you're going to see are going to be related to accounting postings and my observation is that a lot of times that's what separates the A's from the B's, the B's from the C's, and so on. So you'll have all of that by the time we, we finish this discussion of the production process. All right, so we begin with requesting production. And the idea here is that for, for some reason, we need something. We have a need for materials. And in fact, this, this request for production is very likely to be triggered by another process. Now, as we will see a little bit later on in our discussion, one way that this could happen would be from the material planning process, the MRP process, but in fact, it, it could happen apart from that. We could be doing maintenance on a particular piece of equipment, and in order to maintain that particular piece of equipment, there's a component that we need, and it just so happens that that component is something that we make. So we request for that particular component to be made. The planned order is a very straightforward document as far as its contents. What material, how many, and when are the basic questions that a, a planned order is going, to, is going to contain. And this might be, as we observe, generated by other processes. If we are doing this, using an MRP program, then that request comes to us from the material planning process. And if you think about MRP and material planning, as we observed a moment ago, that means that this is coming from sales forecasts. If we say that this request is coming to us from fulfillment, what does that imply? It is, it could be consumption-based, but I don't know that that's the best answer to that question. You're thinking along the right lines, but I don't think you've got it exactly. No. What strategy would this be associated with? make to order, okay? If we are running make to order, then the planned order comes to us based on the fulfillment process. Salesperson just went out and sold 10,000 boxes of blueberry muesli, okay, we gotta make it. And so that comes to us from the fulfillment process. Project management, what, what's project management have to do with? And remember, we have talked about project management in terms of uh, making things over time. And a great example of that would be something that we are going to experience on our campus over the next few months, which is the construction of different buildings. Building a football stadium, uh, renovating the Culp Center, building a fine arts center. And this is a great example of what we were talking about a moment ago related to resources. It's not like day one of building the, the football stadium 
all the materials get delivered on day one. You know, you don't want the bricks there on day one when you've got to clear the land and prep it and everything else. Project management is the idea that I come up with a schedule for constructing something, and it says that on day 75, um, we need a particular item. And so project management specifies materials, how many, and when comes from the project plan. So either this is going to be based on forecast, material planning, MRP, fulfillment if we're doing some kind of make-to-order scenario, or project management if we're making things over time, like Boeing making aircraft, construction companies building buildings, and so on. You could also just go into the system and create one of these manually. You know, an individual worker who is so authorized could just go in and, and create a planned order for a given material for quantity and so on. There is a danger associated with this. In the context of ERP SIM, why were you not encouraged to do this? What's the danger here? And I say danger, not like something's going to blow up. But why is this potentially perilous? Okay, could be, but I don't think that's the best answer to that question. Why could you not say, oh man, we're running low on blueberry muesli. I'm going to go in and create a planned order for 150,000 units of blueberry muesli. And you could do that. You absolutely could do that. There's a transaction to do that. Why is that not going to solve your problem, though? Yeah, it absolutely would not take that into account. You're absolutely right about that. But there's something else we're missing here. It, there's no material check here. Creating a planned order in no way causes the system to check to see if I have the materials I need to be able to make this. So you could go in and create a planned order, and if you do so manually, which you can in the context of ERP SIM, you try and convert that planned order into something else, and the system would say, uh, we don't have the raw materials for you to be able to do that, which is why we do things like MRP. And so you can create a planned order manually, but what we have to realize is all that means is you have created a request for the people doing production to make you something, but you have not in any way ensured that they're going to actually have the resources they need to make that happen, unless you account for that otherwise in, in the work that you're going to do. So if you think about the data in the planned order, uh, obviously there's going to be a reference to the material master because you're going to be specifying, okay, I want a given product, DXTR1020. Uh, there's going to be a reference to plants and such because we're going to be thinking in terms of where we want this made, where we want this put. And then there's going to be quantities and dates and things like that associated with it. And so 
all of these items uh, that go on to a planned order, I, I think, are fairly logical and, and answer the question that we've talked about just a, a moment ago. Um, what I want, how many, and, and when do I want them? Well, the next step in the process is actually authorizing production. And uh, one of the things that, that we could observe here is that a, a planned order is, is a planning document. It's, it's kind of right there in the name. It's a planning document. It, it has no significance other than it's something that I do in my company to, to help me plan. Um, what I can do, however, is I can convert that planned order to a production order. And a production order is now an execution document. I don't know why I get those horizontal lines I get every so often, so please ignore that. Production order. Okay, so the idea here, let me back up a little so as to, so if I have a planned order, I can go into the system and I can just convert that to a production order. And you did that in the context of ERP SIM. It usually is one of the more fun things to do for some reason, at least I find it to be fun. You go and you have the grid, you pick out the things you want, you hit the convert button, and basically you're telling the factory, make me this stuff. Well, as a point of fact, you can go in and create a production order without there having been a planned order. There's no law that says the only way you can create a production order is, is by having a planned order. And so you could go in and there's a transaction to manually create a production order. You can key all that in without there having ever been a planned order created. So we don't have to do planning. It's, it's a good idea, but technically you do not have to have a planned order, but you are going to have to have a production order if anything is going to be made. Now the production order has on it a little bit more in the way of details than we see in the, in the planned order. It has what materials are to be produced, how many and when, okay, that was things that were there on the planned order, but notice it now adds to it, where will they be produced, what resources are to be used, and how much is it expected to be cost, how much is it expected to cost. So if you think about the things that, that we just talked about a moment ago, it's obviously going to have to reference the bill of materials. It's obviously going to have to reference the routing. And so every production order will have with it an expected cost of production. And so if we told it to make us 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli, it might come to the conclusion that that would cost us uh, $37,243.12. Now, where is that calculation going to come from? It's going to come from the routing and it's going to come from the bill of materials, and it's going to come from the other input documents that will be leveraged in putting together this, this production order. So a production order is a very, very important kind of document. Matter of fact, this is a kind of document that we talked about previously in the semester, you've answered homework questions about, and even had a question about on your midterm exam. A production order is an example of a blank blank. 
Anybody tell me what the two words are that go in there? And it's not like fun thing. What is a production order an example of? And I will give you a hint. It has to do with this right here. And let me describe it. A, a production order functions kind of like a sponge. Is that how you spell sponge? What? You got one word right. Cost is right. Center is not. So what's the other word that goes there? No. It is a cost object. A cost object is a document that absorbs costs, or more specifically, it absorbs cost data, until such a time as it is settled to a cost center later on. So essentially, you could view this as a document, which it is, that as the process continues, more and more cost-related data is going to be added to this document as we use materials, as people do work, as time goes by. And at the very end, when we are done, we will be able to say, we made this many units of a product, and this is the actual cost. So notice, at the beginning, we have the expected cost, but then as the process continues, it is going to collect cost data because it serves as a cost object, and we're going to allocate or, or respond to the discrepancy between the expected cost and the actual cost. So elements of the authorized production step typically will have a planned order as the trigger, but we observe that we could do away without that if we wanted to. And I, I mentioned this to you a moment ago. We do have a need for materials. That's what ultimately causes us to say, hey, we need to make this. So this could be based on MRP telling us we need this. It could be based on fulfillment telling us we need it. It could be based on project management telling us we need it, but we, we have to have it. And so that's going to authorize production. And so we have this creation of production order. We use the routing, the bill of material, the component assignment, assignment of the production resource tools, and all of this that goes into the, the outcomes here of, of production. So once again, data that's in the production order, lots of information here, but primarily reflective of what we have been discussing about. And so we won't go through this in detail. Similarly, the structure of a production order. Lots of things going on here in, in this production order. You know, we have, uh, it's a document that has a number. It's assigned to a plant. Um, we list work centers. We list values associated with that. We tell what sequence. So when you create a production order, you decide this is the way we are going to make that item. And so there's capacities listed for machines and persons. Um, we list the individual components that are going to be used in the production. We list any of these production resource tools. We list costs. And I made reference to this a moment ago. At the beginning, we start with a planned cost, which is going to be calculated based on the data in our system. But then we're going to list actual costs. 
why might plan cost and actual cost be different? Let's talk about that for a second. Why might they be different? Okay, so we could have timing changes related to, related to production. And one of the things that you had mentioned, that you just mentioned was um, uh, setup time could be different, okay? Maybe we're training somebody, they're new at this, and it should take them 10 minutes to do setup, but it's actually taking them 13 or 14 minutes to do setup. So things are running behind. Why else could there be a divergence between planned and actual? We could have differences in material costs. Okay, now let's talk about that in a little bit more detail here. Material costs. What are the two different ways that material costs are tracked? This is not new. This was covered on your midterm exam. Two different ways we cost materials. Blank and blank. Or blank and blank blank. Standard and moving average, okay? So we have materials that we keep track of their costs either based on standard cost or moving average costs. So when you ask me to estimate what this production run's going to be, I'm gonna look at all the materials and I'm going to look at all the quantities and then I'm gonna look at every one of those material masters and say, this material is costed based on standard cost, here's that number. This material is costed based on moving average cost, here's that number. And we do the math and we add it up and we have an estimated material cost. But reality might be different than that. Maybe at the time I bought a given component, I got a really good deal on something, other items I overpaid a little bit for, so there will be differences in my actual cost most likely, and the standard or moving average cost that is listed on the material master. So we could have differences in time. We could have differences in material cost. What other reason might we, might we see differences here? Okay, we could have issues where at the end of this, we were expecting this many inputs to yield 25,000 units of output, and we had to throw 300 of them away for some reason. And so it's not so much that the costs were different, and it's not so much that the time was different, it's that our, our yield was different than we expected. Okay, so there's lots of different reasons why there could be a discrepancy. And in fact, if you think about it, it's pretty likely that you may never hit your estimated cost dead on. <clears throat> I mean, you might be a little bit under, which would be good. You might be a little bit over, which would be acceptable. But for you to hit it dead on is probably not something that's going to happen with, with great frequency. So what we see on every production order is there is a planned amount an estimate for materials that's going to be a calculation based on quantities in the bill of material and there's going to be a planned estimate based on labor. This is going to come from the product routing and the product routing is going to tell us how many minutes people are going to spend working on things and remember 
the product routing actually listed people. So it does actually have the ability to take into account how much people are actually getting paid. So this is what's put on the production order. In reference to what we talked about a moment ago with this being a cost object, what we're going to see then is as work goes on, other things are going to be added to this because we're going to keep track of what we actually spent on these things. But as we begin, we always start with a planned amount. So we don't go into this blind, we go into this with, with a plan. And so that happens in the step where we convert the planned order into a production order. None of this is taken into account in the planned order, but the production order will capture the planned cost of, of production run for us. So the big thing that authorizing production does for us now is it's going to cause a lot of things to happen. As you recall from your experience with ERP SIM, just because I I submit a production order right now doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to start working on it right now. They may be doing other things already. So there's going to have to be some scheduling that happens. In the context of ERP SIM, this was totally transparent to you. And all that happened in ERP SIM was as you released planned orders, they went into a queue and the queue was executed in terms of the first thing that was converted is the next thing that they worked on. Well, we don't have to handle it that way. You could have a production scheduler that would look at all the things coming in and rearrange the sequence. And that could be done by a human being or we could employ a system logic to help us with that. But there's going to be scheduling. There's going to be availability check. Remember, that happens at the point at which you convert the planned order to production order. In our experience, we had the system go out and do the availability check. That's a point of configuration because we might allow the conversion to a production order to happen and then once we have the schedule in place, then we know when we need the materials. So we have reservations that are put in place for materials. We do the preliminary costing that we were just talking about. And perhaps at that point is when we issue purchase requisitions for material. So there's a lot of things here that happen based on our desire for how we want this to proceed and how we have this configured. What actually happens within the system is when we create a planned, or excuse me, a production order, the production order is, is created, which means the status in the system is, is CRTD. So the production order is actually sitting out there at that point and, and it, has been, it has been created. In order for it to be released, we have to have had goods movements, we have to have confirmations, we have to have documents printing, and then we have to have settlement. So a lot of this is basically before we can actually say, okay, start work. If you think about it, in, in ERP SIM, you, you, you didn't have to get your hands dirty. 
you just told the factory, make me 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli, and, and you assume that all of your factory workers would be good robotic people and do what you asked, and there was never any problem, and it would all just happen. Well, in the real world, what actually has to happen here is that you have to get geared up to make 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli. And so we've got to bring all of the things out of the warehouse and get them staged appropriately in the manufacturing facility. We have to print the various documentations that are needed to tell people what they're supposed to do. If they're not going to be paper, then some way electronically we need to communicate to various parties. We need to take care of all the accounts related transactions related to moving items out of inventory into the production facility and so there's a lot of things that actually go on in the system here as it gets ready to manage the production process remember that early days of ERP ERP was focused on production management so using an ERP system to help us with ordering that's great Using ERP system to help us with selling, that's great. But where ERP really got its start was in helping companies manage production. And so this is kind of its bread and butter. This is why this software was initially created, was to help companies manage intelligently very, very sophisticated manufacturing operations. So what we have here is we have the ability to manage the order release process. We could, in fact, do automatic order release, which is pretty much what you guys did when you did this in the context of ERP SIM. You looked at your planned orders, you picked out the planned orders you wanted to execute, you highlighted them, you hit convert, they turned into production orders, and pretty much at that point were released for fulfillment. But what we're saying here is there could be an intermediate step if we need time between when the production order is created and when we actually go, we can have that time you can actually release a production order at two different levels. And, and this is going to sound weird, I think, but, but imagine, let me draw something here off to the side. Let's assume that we're talking about making blueberry muesli. And let's assume for the sake of argument that it's a, a five-step process, okay? And so we have, we have five different steps in our, what would, this, what would this be called? Five different steps in our what? In our routing, okay? So we have five steps in our routing. We could say, go. And it's kind of like waving the green flag and we're saying, do the whole thing, okay? And so what we do there is, is we have, you know, a header and then we have the five individual line items. And if we release the header, everything happens. But you could go in and just release specific operations. And if you think about this, if this is really a manufacturing facility, and maybe we're not in operation 24 hours a day. So we would say, okay, today is Tuesday. Um, we want to do step one 
on Tuesday afternoon before we leave, but then everything else we want to do on Wednesday morning. So here I am on Tuesday. I might release Operation 1. And so the people that are doing Operation 1, they do that. And then the next day I come back and release Operations 2 through 5. So the point is, you could release the entire thing or you could release it operation by operation if you were so inclined in your manufacturing process. So the idea here is we could think of this in terms of, okay, either this entire production order is released, R-E-L would be the status, or it's partially released, which means that some things have been done and some things have not been done. And this all gets into what we're talking about making and, and the manufacturing process. And it, it well could be that the nature of the way this works is we want to do the first three steps and then take those items and put them off to the side and do something else and come back and do the latter two steps the next day, the next week, or so on. So the point of this is we can exert as much control over this as we want. And whereas in the past you probably have thought of in terms of send the production order out and they do the whole thing, we can do it that way or we can exert much greater control and say, nope, do this part, but, but don't do this part or stop at this point. So the point of this is this is not all the options we have, but this is an example of the fact that we have a lot of different options available to us as far as exerting control over the manufacturing process. Now, one of the th any questions about this, though, before we keep going? One of the things that has to happen is we have to issue materials to production for them to make stuff for us. And so one of the issue move, one of the goods issue we have is a goods movement 261, which is goods issue to production. And so that's going to be something that we're going to see a lot of if we run a, a manufacturing facility. And so we have raw materials or, or other materials, don't have to be raw materials, that we have in our inventory that are going to be pulled out of inventory and issued to the production facility. That is going to have a significant set of impact, which is listed for you already there in, in your notes if you have it, but I would trust that at least some of these you could logically think through on your own at this point. It is going to have an impact on financial accounting. What is the impact that we are going to see here in financial accounting? Somebody just describe it to me basically. What's, what's the significance of this? Probably not. Right idea, but definitely wrong posting. But more generally, what, what do we have to memorialize? Yeah, inventory is, is no longer there. We just took 20,000 boxes out of inventory and sent it to production. So we have to memorialize the, the fact that raw materials or other materials are leaving our storage location. From a material perspective, what, what do we capture here? 
this takes care of dollars. What takes, what's the material perspective? The quantity, okay? So we pulled 10,000 of this out, we pulled 7,000 of this out, and so the impact of that has to be captured with the goods issue. So we're going to have general ledger accounts that are going to be updated based on this stuff being pulled out of inventory and being sent to production. Inventory is going to have to be updated. Reservations are going to have to be updated. One of the things that we referred to is that when this process began, we went out and said, hey, you've got 10,000 boxes out there. I, I want to reserve them. And so that updated the stock status for that. We still had those boxes sitting in the warehouse, but instead of them being in unrestricted use, they were now in reserved. Well, now I, I pull them out of being reserved. They're, they're not reserved anymore. Now the reserved quantity drops to zero. And then we update the cost. And here is now where we are going to make note of the actual cost in the order. So this is a reference to the production order. And this is a reference to the fact that the production order is serving as a cost object. And so the actual cost of these materials are going to be accounted for as a part of this, this goods issue. The cost object is, is the production order, like we were talking about a few minutes ago. Okay. Now, other things, the, the actual thing that's going to happen here is, in fact, the goods are going to move. You know, a, a warehouse worker is going to drive a forklift over and pull things off of racks and drive it to a particular designated location. At that point, a production worker may come with a hand truck and move it to a different location. You know, there may be people that work for us that their entire jobs are staging items for production. So this could be quite an involved production, no pun intended, uh, as, we, as we do this goods issuing. It is, it is non-trivial, and it is a key element in making sure production happens efficiently to make sure that everything is exactly where it needs to be in appropriate quantities and, and so on. I think I made reference to you before about having worked in um, an institutional food service kitchen many, many thankfully many years ago. That is when I decided that going to work at four o'clock in the morning was not something that I wanted to do for a career. And so I changed my career plans. But um, it's always interesting back in that environment, um, our staff was largely made up of college students. We served about 8,000 meals a day. And you learn a lot about how people think. And as I think about material staging, I can think about many stories, including one time where one of the jobs used to be when, when we had like green beans for lunch, like I'm sure all of you have eaten green beans probably hundreds of times in your life. Well, in, in a commercial food operation, they come in a number 10 can, which is a can that's not quite a gallon in size, but it's about that size. And they come six to a case. And when you have to open enough of those to feed 8,000 people, it's a lot of cans to open. And so um, you would have like somebody whose job it was to take two hours to open all the cans. 
Well, we discovered very quickly that what you had to do was make sure you brought that person exactly the right number of cans because at some point they kind of turn into a robot and just turn into like a can opening machine and turn their brain off. And like one time we had a guy open like enough canned green beans to feed like 30,000 people because somebody just brought him, you know, pallets of green beans and assumed he would take just what he needed and he just decided no that he would open everything that was brought to him you know material staging becomes very critical when you're baking one time my, my wife's favorite story because I, I actually met her during this era was the one time that in the bakery some wires got crossed and one of the bakers made cornbread and another baker thought that was yellow cake and decided to put chocolate icing on it <laughs> and if you've never had cornbread with chocolate icing on it it's really weird um, and not at all something you probably would want to eat on a regular basis so material staging becomes really important if you if you put the cornbread where the cake's supposed to be somebody grabs it and frosts it and and you have a problem so you know this issue of actually staging materials where they need to be in appropriate quantities and all it's it's actually a real thing you you, you have to worry about and 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 take care uh, to to do here so this is just a, a picture from your book that, that pretty much says the same things we just said on the, on the last slide here. So in the goods issue step, obviously the goods issue document is going to be pulling data from the material master. It's going to be referencing organizational data. It's going to have quantities and dates and storage locations because we're going to have to know where the stuff came from and we're going to see the production order is, is what's going to tell us this. So, you know, we needed 10,000 boxes and we pulled those out of storage location uh, RM12. And that's where we got them from. And so that's the, that's the goods issue. Now, yes? Okay, so we have... Um, yeah, this is a weird thing, these slides. A user input is, is, so the user is putting in over here on the right, I got it from storage, location, whatever. Over here, you could kind of think of it as where you told them to get it from. And so you would expect these to be the same. Uh, but in fact, if the user went to, you know, maybe you told them get it out of storage, location, RM12 and the user went to, the, the warehouse worker went to RM12 and they weren't there. So he, he went to RM13 right next door and had them. This is where he would put down that he got it from RM13 and this is where you told him to get it from one location. So there, you, know, you would expect most times that these would match up exactly, but this is, you know, this is where they're told to and this is where they actually do it. It's kind of the same thing where you know, the production order tells us quantities and the user inputs quantities. And this goes back to where sometimes you have things that kind of aren't countable and so this might have put down, you know, that they're going to need grease and it just puts down grease and some kind of vague reference and up here, you know, the person gets one, one pail of grease. So there, there are times when the user, what the user is putting in is what the user actually got or the user actually did. What are the 
if you think about it, and what you've just described is a really, really good scenario for us to talk about. Okay, so here's plant one, and here's plant two. And you said that they're going to work cooperatively on making something, okay? In actuality, that would not be one production run. What would actually happen is plant one would do their thing, and then that material would most likely be classified as a semi-finished good, and it would go over to plant two as one of their inputs, and then they would do their thing with it. And in fact, then at that point, it might go back to plant one, but it would still be a semi-finished good. But you would not have a production run spanning beyond the walls of a single plant. But you might have that what you're done with at the end of the production run isn't something that's actually ready to sell to a customer. I worked with a publishing company in the past that they printed books, but they didn't put the hardback covers on them. So they printed the books and put them on pallets and then sent them to another company to put the covers on. So that would be an example of this. Okay. Good question. Other questions? Okay. Uh, whoops. Accounting. Everybody's favorite thing here. All right. So we do the goods issue. What's going to happen? Well, we now have fewer assets than we had a moment ago. So we are going to be crediting the appropriate asset accounts based on the amount of goods we have pulled out. So in this case, we pulled out of raw material $9,237.50 worth of whatever, and we pulled out of semi-finished goods $5,750 worth of whatever. The offsetting debit is for, you'll notice, raw material consumption expense for the raw materials and semi-finished goods consumption expense for the semi-finished goods. Now, somewhat this is dependent upon how we want to do our accounting records, but in the context of this organization, they have different inventory accounts for different categories of goods, and so we're also going to respect that in the reflection of the consumption accounts. So we have a credit to the appropriate inventory accounts which is straightforward. We have less of an asset. It's not leaving our hands, but in the sense of it leaving the warehouse, it's a credit, and we turn it over to the warehouse, and it becomes at that point an expense of production. And so we do this accounting posting, and this now becomes our actual material cost. And you immediately note, I'm sure in this particular example, that our actual material costs were higher than our planned material costs. So we're going to have potentially a cost overrun here unless the workers agree to work for free or uh, something else is actually going on. Questions? I am moving raw materials and semi-finished goods into production. So, you know, let's assume this is probably associated with making a bicycle. So I'm moving like chains 
and and seats and handlebars that are classified as raw materials and then I'm moving semi-finished goods would be things like fender assemblies and things like that. I'm moving that all into production and I'm turning it over to them to do their work. Okay. Yeah, these are these are corresponding debits and credits here. So yeah. That's correct. I assume when I issue it, I'm, I'm issuing it for them to do their things with, so I, I record it as consumption at that point. Now, we will come back to, and if you've taken accounting classes, this might be what's concerning you, work in process and things like that. We, we, we back flush that. But the idea is once I give it to production, production is a black box, and I assume that, that they are doing their thing with it from my perspective here. Right. Yeah, good questions. All right, so now we are going to kind of treat production like a black box, and let's look at one more thing here, and, and then we will, we will stop for the day, and that is um, goods confirmation. All right, so confirmation is they're done, okay? So we issued the stuff to them, and, and they're done now. We, there's nothing for us to talk about related to them doing the work. We, we talked about that, and we talked about the routing and other things. There are a couple different ways that, that they confirm things. There is order level confirmation and there is operation level confirmation. So the idea is this. Um, we had different steps. Remember 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and so on? Well, at the end of every one of these operations, there's a confirmation. And it literally could be, and in fact likely is, just a button that the operator presses that says, hey, I'm done. And that causes you know, the manufacturing line to move the next one into place. And I capture that as a, as a confirmation of that operation. Order level confirmation happens at the very, very end when the entire production order now is, is finished. So that happens here presumably after, after step number 50. So we confirm individual operations and we confirm the overall, the overall production order itself. The data that is in the confirmation, okay, we put down things like, you know, how many we did, what we did, the duration, who did it, all of these kinds of things. It was captured here in the confirmation. But if you think about it, this, a lot of this is going to happen in an automated fashion. You have a button at your work center that when you press it, it takes the item in front of you away and brings you a new one. And then the new one comes in and you start your work and when you're done, you press the button and that goes away and a new one comes in. The system can keep track of the time between the intervals in which you push the button. And it can therefore assign a cost to the work that you did based on, based on that. So we can be as sophisticated with this as we want to or, or as flexible with this as we want to, but we can set up all kinds of different automated collections here to capture this data very, very precisely. However we choose to do it, either precisely or less precisely, that data is going to go into these, these confirmations. And ultimately that confirmation is where we are going to get our labor cost. So we know 
how much everybody's getting paid. And so the actual labor associated with this order was 775 minutes, which meant that uh, that was 31 minutes per bike. The average worker got paid, you know, $50, or everybody got paid $50 here. Uh, but more precisely, we see that, in fact, the labor costs associated with this production run was $645.83. So if you have somebody working on your manufacturing line that's a senior worker and gets paid more than everybody else, you know, that could cause your cost of a production run to be higher than when you have other workers working. So the idea here is that most organizations want to actually capture their real cost of engaging in a production run. So you can see here's what we planned, here's what actually happened. Now as an aside, Let's just talk about this in the context of ERP SIM for a moment and for you to realize how easy your lives were. ERP SIM, your plan costs and your actual costs were exactly the same. You could imagine in a real world how much more challenging this becomes if you have discrepancies like this. And now you're in charge of setting prices. So in some way, you kind of have to know not only what the plan values were, but how things are happening in regards to actual values, because this might be the difference in setting a price that would cause you to be profitable or, or not profitable, depending upon what your actual profit margin is and the prices that you set. Well, this is a good place for us to stop for today. And